Welcome to Corporate Wayfinding, Conversations in Transformation, with Dr. J.P. Gedeon. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Corporate Wayfinding, Conversations in Transformation. I'm J.P. Gedeon. I'm so glad you could join me for this podcast series. Our intent here is to discuss complexities and challenges involved in corporate and cultural transformations, especially in today's crazy and bustling and volatile world. Every episode of this podcast is designed to feature nationally and internationally renowned leaders and ask them to share their insights about current disruptive states in the marketplace, what they've learned about adapting, and also what wisdom they might have about constructive and permanent transformation, as well as a bit of educated fortune telling where we try to understand and predict what the future will look like for us and how we can best be ready for it. Should you wish to get a hold of me at any time and continue a conversation in person, I would be happy to hear from you. Please get in touch with me by logging on to my website at drjpgideon.com. That's D-R-J-P-G-E-D-E-O-N.com. And uh, drop me a message on the contact form there. I'd be happy to hear from you. In this episode, I am very happy to welcome Peter Constantino as my guest. He is one of Canada's top leading public policy practitioners and academics. He's also an award-winning university lecturer. Peter is a lifelong public servant who has worked at the federal and provincial levels, as well as in the college and university sectors. His many assignments culminated in an appointment as a chief of staff for an Ontario Minister of Education and Training, as well as the head of government relations at some of the country's top colleges and universities. Currently, Peter is the president and CEO of the Political Acuity Institute that offers political acuity training to civil servants and elected officials around the globe. He has worked with the Chinese government to develop a model ethical code of conduct for public sector employees and diplomats. He has also worked with the Prime Minister's office in Vietnam to design a code of conduct for civil servants there and is currently helping the government of China reorient 600 universities to focus on a more applied and industry-focused mandate. Peter has won numerous teaching awards that I can tell you he completely deserves having watched him in action, but namely at the University of Toronto, and also he has won the prestigious President's University-wide Teaching Award at York University. I am honored to be able to call him a trusted friend and am pleased to be able to share his insights with you today. Enjoy the conversation. Peter, welcome. I am so happy to have you with me. Uh, I always enjoy our conversations and gain so much from your insights every time we talk. And uh, I think that perhaps our audience will get just as much out of it as I do. Thank you, JP. I'm happy to be here. So you are an internationally known government relations, stakeholder relations, political acuity guru, if I may put it that way. But I'm not sure everybody is immediately aware of what political acuity or any of those things might generally be. So just for those who aren't sure, could you kind of fill us in a little bit and then we can go on and talk about some of the things you're seeing in the world today. One of the first things that I noticed when I entered the workforce as a young civil servant in Ontario was that there were lots of people around me working very hard and some of them had and enjoyed great success in their careers, and others 
struggled. And as I got more senior and ended up in a room briefing a minister, I noticed that some were really quite effective at communicating and others, this was a, a disastrous meeting that they just read the room all wrong. They got it, they got it all, all wrong. They misunderstood the challenge or the kinds of options that would be acceptable and the briefing the decisions were quite calamitous. And so I started to realize that some people have a sense for what's going on and others don't. And I wanted to learn more about it. Mm. So for me, it started with the basic building blocks of the system of government that we have, that we divide the players in two parts. There is a political part, those who are elected to represent the communities they come from and who are asked to make choices, to decide. Mm -hmm. And there are others, a, a whole cadre of people, civil servants or bureaucrats who are permanent, who serve whatever government of the day is there, who are hired because of their expertise, education, knowledge and experience to provide good information so that these people make informed decisions. Right. And when they do make those decisions, they go away and they implement them with great enthusiasm. And what I noticed was some people could brief better, could inform and could uh, influence better than others. And there was this kind of conflict when one side didn't really understand the other. The tin ear, if you will, where people just don't get it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to understand more about what it was. And so this was the beginning of a, a lifelong pursuit of understanding what that sort of special skill is. Yeah, and I think, I think that's one of the reasons that you and I work so well together when we do and uh, understand one another in certain ways, because my world obviously is one of corporate transformation and cultural change and executive function. And I too have grappled with this idea of what is that X factor? that takes this person and makes them a superstar while this other person with equal capacity in other ways somehow misses it. So you spent your career unearthing this and teaching people the mechanics of it. A big part of this was first to try and define it. Now we all know it's there, we've seen it. You've seen people who have it and, and you've seen people who don't, but even just defining it has been difficult. There is no shortage of ways in which people try to capture this. Sometimes people will say it's that uh, secret sauce, that something. Others will say it's knowing, knowing what to say, when to say it, knowing when not to say something. Others will say it's a set of antennae that allow you to read the context, the room, and the individual. And some say that it is a combination of those things. And right. I'm starting to believe that it is a bigger definition than I had first thought. In over two decades of working in the field of corporate transformation, there is always one question that to this day remains an enigmatic mystery. Is leadership capacity something we are born with? Or is it in fact something that is developable? Something that can be taught? Something that can be fostered? In my experience and those of so many of my colleagues, the answer to both of those queries is in fact, yes, 
I asked Peter that very question in order to get his insights. That's exactly it. And of course, you'd know this better than I, but just like we talk about leadership, you know, is leadership innate or is it learned? And I think as all of us have uh, learned more about these topics, we realize it is indeed both. That some people, yes, start out life with somehow a little more of this capacity than others, but that there is a certain proportion of this competency that we can actually train and, and learn. And so uh, think about the greatest basketball team in the world. You've got the best players in the world, but then there's one player who is head and shoulders above the other. Right. And it's that other thing. So let's see if we can't identify it. Let's train people up and take them as far as we can, we can go so that they're now exhibiting a high level of performance. And then there'll be the few that flourish beyond, uh, you know, all that we might expect, but that's okay. And in the time of COVID, now that we have this crisis, what you're calling political acuity, and really what in all my work I call leadership character, has become incredibly important at one's capacity to not only navigate the crisis, but pull in potential partners and creative solutions to what is confronting us. It's absolutely that, I think. The greatest leaders with, I think, the highest level of political acuity are those that have a capacity to not only see the dots, to connect them, but to almost realize where the other dots will be before they arrive. I mean, if we think of our uh, country's own great hockey player and when asked, you know, Wayne Gretzky, why were you so good? He said, I never went to where the puck was. I always went to where it was going to be. I think what we're discovering is that one of the great benefits of honing political acuity skills is your capacity to not only anticipate, but to go even further and shape what that future looks like. An eye to the horizon seems to me to be the best bet to then enable you to have a proactive and strategic stakeholder engagement or a proactive and strategic government relations plan. And this is a place where you and I have, I don't want to say struggled because you and I have not struggled, but we've struggled with clients. And what I'm talking about is that historically, legacy-wise, there is an incredible culture in industry of short-termism right? Politicians are looking towards the next election. Corporations are looking towards the next quarterly report. So everything is about uh, a priority or a particular deadline that's coming up. And although we talk a lot about strategic thinking, strategic mindset, looking to the horizon, planning for the future, certainly what I found in so many of my clients is that although we think we're doing it, what comes out as a plan is really more short-term than it is what you and I would like to see. And so maybe this COVID crisis is putting us in a place where the necessity to look towards the horizon has become highlighted in bright lights because nobody knows what's going on. So everyone's antennae should be up. One of the exciting things about the challenge you pose is that for me, it says that CEOs, industry leaders, broader public sector, not-for-profit leaders, all of these people actually can shape the future, not simply have to live with what others decide it will be. And so this is an exciting time. I mean, if COVID taught us one thing, it was that 
we are connected in ways that went beyond financial. I mean, 2008, 2009 financial crisis taught us that in the Western world and beyond, we are connected financially in ways that is profound, profoundly Absolutely. greater than we ever thought. But what COVID teaches us is that we've now uh, evolved through globalization and other kinds of institutions that support this and, and other approaches that we're connected in ways that uh, I don't think we've ever really stopped to think about. And COVID should allow us a moment to reflect. And people do talk a little bit about, well, maybe we shouldn't go back to normal. We should go back to a new normal where perhaps we didn't behave the way we did. Well, what does that look like for business and industry? Mm -hmm. And some of that will be driven by consumer choices. Some of that will be driven by limitations on behaviors. You know, some people won't want to go to the movie theater, um, maybe ever again. And others will be simply shaped by what one government does in one jurisdiction affecting others and whatever that kind of new international business arena starts to look like. And uh, wouldn't it be great if we could approach this not so much as the victims of the decisions that others have taken, but rather in a more proactive and strategic and, way? Well, you and I teach a lot at prominent business schools. So this is sort of like a, a JPism to a Peterism. Do you believe that although leaders very often are receptive to this message when you and I both present it to them, do you believe that they actually do think of themselves as movers and shakers beyond just their corporation, but actually in the very fabric of society? I think there are uh, a few, and I'll, I'll say uh, two dozen corporate CEOs who are regularly a part of a conversation about either public policy or the the near to final decision that a cabinet makes at a government at, at all levels. Right. I think there are some who have a profile that get that this is bigger than just a business. And, and I think they do it partly out of uh, branding, partly out of a kind of a cult of celebrity mm -hmm. and part, partly out of uh, ego. Uh, but I think the majority of senior leaders are just trying to do what they do and they tend to look up once in a while and get surprised. That's right. And while they might understand, say, the production of a plastic widget that goes into a, a, a machine that does a certain thing very well, and while they, while they might know the other players in the market they're in, I don't think they look much further beyond that. And I think a lot of them, if they do, they see these functions of government relations and stakeholder engagement, maybe corporate social responsibility. I think they see it as merely a necessary evil and a, and a cost center, not as a strategic opportunity. And so- yeah, I uh, agree. I agree. And, and there, there is an overriding culture that seems to have taken over Western corporate thought, which is this notion of First of all, everything is transactional and operational. So the relationship piece that has become so incredibly important right now has traditionally been put on the back burner or it is a byproduct of, but never the main priority. And that secondly, there's also this notion of adversarialism. Like it's me against the world, me against government. Like I got to spend all this money to talk to these government folks. And then I've got to battle with all my competitors. And the notion of true collaboration in a competitive environment 
uh, really is more of a philosophy than it is a real-time practice. And I, a big part of this emerged in the way that we approached business school education. I mean, MBA programs for a long while created a kind of a, a sort of generalist, people who know a little bit about everything. And then the sector said, oh, no, no, we've got to have technical skills. And so we started to produce MBAs who could calculate things, but they stopped learning how to communicate. They, they weren't strategic thinkers. They were people who could calculate risk or, or, or think about whether the factory should be next to a highway or a body of water. And then now the sector has said, whoa, there are too many specialists out there. We need people who can connect the dots. Right. But all along, as you suggest, two things have been fundamentally flawed. The first is the way we taught them about success was that it, it was a zero-sum game. They, you, know, you could only succeed if you were standing on the throat of your competitor. Right. And compensation systems that became the norm in, in some jurisdictions have sort of spilled over to here. And that reinforces this sort of focus on meeting the target for this quarter. The second part of that is we, uh, that training and also technology and the way uh, this latest generation is growing up, they don't have the kinds of uh, interpersonal skills as a, as a matter of fact, just by growing up in a society, because many of the relationships are via devices. And so we're finding that we're spending more time in our business schools actually teaching soft skills right. because we know how important they are because they don't necessarily come out of that. So add to, to the mix, you know, focus on technical things, an Uber or, or extreme level of competitiveness that's zero sum and that you don't have the skills to engage or communicate and relationships are, are misunderstood and you have this deadly or toxic mix that means corporate CEOs don't get that they can be a part of a broader society and a conversation with government how to shape the way we make public policy so that we're sustainable. And right. that, to my mind, is, is what's missing. You know, I um, read a research report out of Harvard. Actually, it's not just out of Harvard. Harvard led it, but it was multiple universities all around where they had a bunch of industrial psychologists go out and observe, study, audit. And they also did a bit of a meta-study of other primary research um, outings that had already been published. And what they concluded, and this was, I think, in 2018, so not that long ago, even before this crisis hit. So it was almost prophetic. Uh, what they ended up concluding was that competitive advantage in the world today is no longer about a secret recipe or a widget or a patent or a process management structure or an efficiency approach because all of those things somehow are going to be copied or known in an information world. Literally, if it's not going to be leaked, it's going to be copied. And if it's not going to be copied, it's going to be benchmarked. So somehow it's going to get out there. And so what they concluded was that it was the internal functioning and the capacity for interrelationship influence and transformation that was a competitive advantage. And what they basically said was that competitive advantage today is found in those companies where the executive leadership group has so invested and come to understand the relational component of the business that they create an internal culture that is steeped in self-efficacy, hope, 
optimism, resilience, trust, value, growth and development, and integration. And they said that this is competitive advantage because it's not that your competitors can't also do it, but it is that your competitors cannot copy it. They have to go through all the work that you did to create that same environment to fire up your workplace to create expansive effectiveness. And they were finding that all over the world. So I think what you're talking about in terms of political acuity, relationship, government relations, stakeholder management has really come to the fore back even in 2018 when we knew it. But now that there's a crisis, I think we need it more than ever. In fact, I would go so far as to say the new competitive advantage is likability. I think on a, on, on a professional level, people work with people they like to work with. Yeah. As, a, as a consultant, I have stepped away from uh, clients and, and relationships that I deemed uh, not to be uh, positive ones. I, I like to work with people I like to work with. And I think the same is for companies. If the brand is admired and, and liked, then if people feel positive about it, they're more likely to, to purchase it. So it's, it's the magic jelly that somehow exists between all the moving parts that gets people to go further in delivering whatever it is that they're a part of. And to my mind, that's, that's fundamentally political acuity. I mean, I got to get from A to B. Am I going to do that better with honey or with vinegar? And so uh, increasingly, in my mind, political acuity is how we think about these things and then how we go about doing it, and then ultimately our capacity to adapt to this changing context. And so if it is COVID, what does that mean now? And more and more we're seeing those who succeed have that kind of knowing, that touch, that gets people to go far and beyond, that drives loyalty within an organization, that, that has a, a, a positive impact on morale or retention. That's, to my mind, that's like ability. As Peter and I conversed, I was reminded of another guest of mine on this podcast series, Catherine Hay, the CEO of Kids Help Phone. What struck me is how Catherine and Kids Help Phone as a whole weathered the entire COVID crisis, switching from completely in-office to completely virtual in six days, while still doubling output levels and maintaining support for their staff. In speaking with Kathy, I asked her what her secret sauce was in this incredible capacity to transform, and she said that it was that Kids Help Phone had invested in a kind of culture that fostered trust, value, and connectivity well before the crisis hit. As a result of that, when transformation was required, the organization was able to shift and turn much more quickly than those that didn't have the same quotient of trust. Relating to political acuity, I asked Peter his point of view and asked him for his insights. So in my mind, that's a great example of a company that has invested proactively and has benefited when they needed to. As I think of COVID, I think, well, why did some countries do better than others? Yeah. Well, if we think about the case of Canada, part of it is, I think, the, the culture generally across our citizenry is that we were more likely to follow the requests of government, that we kind of did what we were told to do. Yes, we did. 
Now that's terrific because perhaps we did in fact push the curve down and, 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 and uh, save our, our healthcare system and our, and our population from uh, greater uh, ravage. But will that be the same in round two? So as we talk, Israel has closed down for three weeks and right. uh, school boards and universities are starting to report clusters of numbers where we've now brought people back together again and some of the behaviors haven't always followed the best practices. And so we're seeing these flare-ups of numbers. We're now going back to, th to 300 new cases in our province every single day. And so are we going to be as prepared to shut down again? And so I think what we're going to see is, and it may be sort of 10 to 15% of the population that used to be pretty compliant and happy to do so, reluctant this time because A, their financial circumstances may have changed or B, right. they're, they're starting to have the fatigue uh, that, that has set in for many of us and that we're just tired of all this. And, and, and C, it could just be that we are actually asking, did we overreact? And so um, political acuity and, and sort of smart leadership here is getting that this time is not the same as last time, That's that right. there are little things out there that make the context different. Well, to begin with, we know the story, we know the processes, we have the material, we have the supply chains for things that we need that we didn't have back then or that we hadn't cultivated. So the mindset is a little, is a little different. My concern about this time, though, is that there is enormous pressure. Well, there was enormous pressure on government to manage this to bring it forward, to do something good, to protect community. And, you know, I think actually in Canada, we responded very well to this. And then there was pressure then on government from the business sector to open up and to allow us to make some money again. And, you know, we're really suffering here. And so government tried to figure out what's the best way to do it. And now we're in a place where we're reopening. But as we reopen and see surges, my concern is that now there's a political reason for government's reaction to be a little bit more lagging than leading because to just proactively shut us down again has a political cost. So what are you thinking about that and what might be in our futures? Part of that is that I believe the cost goes far beyond the political cost, right? There is a, um, sure. a mental health aspect to this. Yeah. And, um, in so many other ways, we realized that the shutdown had implications. So, you know, some are asking, did we save healthcare and the healthcare sector by ruining the economy? And so I think now, as we know more, although it is by far fully understood, as we know more, we're probably, all of us, more comfortable with the question the answer, what do we shut down? How much do we shut down? Uh, that will be the subject of great debate. So I suspect we don't go back to complete shutdown mm -hmm. because the, the pressures, not just political, but say the mental health care pressures or the physical pressures may manifest as political pressures, but they, they just exist now in quantifiable terms. And so uh, governments will be much more reluctant to do this. The only saving grace is that in the back of our minds, 
on the horizon is a vaccine and we're almost there. But imagine if, if there wasn't this hope of a cure, then this debate becomes something different. So we tried to kind of just hang in there. Let's do what we can. We're almost there. We're at clinical trials. We've got three companies now at stage three. We're, 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 we're almost there. It, without that, uh, this would be a very different dialogue. In listening to Peter's analysis, I was reminded of the words of another guest on this podcast series, Dr. Vera Tarman, a physician and prominent addiction specialist. Vera stated that demand for mental health care has risen so much in this crisis that the system is at capacity. In fact, she stated that many practitioners are so overtaxed that they are resorting to maintaining the status quo with their patients, trying to keep them from inflicting further damage instead of being able to pursue further healing. She was particularly concerned about the future state of mental health care should this crisis and capacity crunch continue. In thinking of Vera's words about mental health and linking mental health to the commercial, economic, educational, and marketplace crises that are facing us in the midst of this pandemic, I asked Peter whether or not government tables are looking at the question holistically and whether or not there should be more than just the same half a dozen business leaders sitting at those tables working to determine our futures. Oh, well, wouldn't that be nice? I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think they're at the table now thinking about their own survival, and that of their, their, their company or their industry. I think for some of them, they're salivating because they see, ah, I'm a steel maker. We've been getting killed in a global uh, economy where, you know, producers from places like China, you know, have far uh, greater capacity to produce product at a lower cost. Sure. This may be the time when governments think about uh, the impact of sort of these free markets on products like steel. So for some of them, they'll see the opportunity, but most of the reaction to COVID has been, I would say, more fortuitous than anything. Somehow, for the first time in the history of the planet, governments have put people ahead of corporations. I mean, most of my students who are observers of the relationship between business and government would say, oh, it's, I mean, the reason why we have the highest cell phone rates in the world is because, you know, the the government's favoring corporations over people. And, you know, this talk about equality now that we, you know, we hadn't heard much about previously is a function of us starting to think about um, something broader than simply the corporate agenda. So governments for the first time ever have put people ahead of corporations. And the question is, is that the new balance of things or is that simply a, a, a moment in time, uh, an unknown no. enemy what do we do? This is an interesting thing you're bringing up. Um, I have an article in front of me by Mike College, the president of Ipsos. And in it, he defines social cohesion, which is one of the main currencies, I suppose, that governments need to be effective. And he says that a society is cohesive if it works towards the well-being of all its members, if it fights exclusion and marginalization, creates a sense of belonging, promotes trust and offers its members the opportunity of upward social mobility. Now, this is, I think, from the OECD that he got that uh, definition. But what's interesting to me about that definition relating to what you just said is it 
predicate social cohesion on government putting people ahead of corporations. And therefore, for decades, we've been doing it wrong and should not be surprised if our society feels a little bit disjointed or polarized. So perhaps this, is, this crisis is providing us an opportunity to rethink how we do things, provided, of course, that people actually rethink it. And the reason I'm saying that, because I don't know what you're experiencing, but in my world, I find a lot of people still using uh, sort of old ways of thinking to try to work through this new world. Oh, agreed. One of the things I think of when you present this notion is a very simple concept, and that is it's not in corporate interest to keep people down. I mean, a big part of the evolution of China and India, for example, is to lift people out of poverty. Right. Now, think about that. If, and only at this sort of basic level, the minute people come out of poverty, and, and there are many ways of defining this, but let's think of it as simple as at the end of the month, you have a few extra dollars. What do we do with that? We spend it. And so it is in the interests of corporations to see a burgeoning and growing middle class. We should like nothing more than having many, many more people rise out of poverty to join constructively both the, uh, the consumer end of things, but also the, the taxpaying end of things. So sure, of it is not in the interest of corporations to have this very precarious situation, but it's sort of where we ended up. And so hopefully another one of the great axioms, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, right. means that we take full advantage of this as a point of departure for so many of the other bigger questions that we've asked. Societies are more stable when people are not hungry. And so let's make sure that people have a and this is this is the role of government and corporations should be a part of this some kind of level playing field where everyone has the the chance of success because that success will have many positive implications for all aspects of our society but do you think that the reason we didn't cultivate it in the past was based on how we train business leaders in business schools going back to what we talked about earlier or do you think that really there was just this culture that my job is to run my business and the government takes care of that stuff and everybody sure. was looking at everybody else, you know? Yeah, and part of that is a kind of false notion of the, the, the simple idea of the American dream or the Canadian right. dream that um, everybody can rise up. So if you're not, well, you know, pull up your socks. And, and if, if you don't, well, then there's something wrong with you. Right. Uh, th this is fundamentally flawed. We know uh, yep. that, that that's just not true. Yep. And um, I, I don't subscribe, though, to the notion that there's some kind of uh, uh, Marxist uh, class of people keeping others down. Um, yes, I get that we use immigration as a way of expanding markets and ensuring we have uh, cheaper forms of labor. But the, the truth is, the success of a modern knowledge economy is far different than that simple notion. And I think this has just caused us to pause and think. And while I'm not a sort of so-called sort of uh, socialist or um, corporatist where, as in many Scandinavian countries, you know, you have business and labor and government at the table making decisions. Yes. Um, it, 
we we could do with a little of that of of the Chinese idea of thinking about longer term perspectives, not just this quarter or this election cycle. We we could do with um, thinking about five and ten and twenty years down the road, but we're not there yet. Well, I you know media plays a part in this, I think, because what I hear you saying is that all systems that are functioning, because that is. Probably the best way to define a system is it functional or is it dysfunctional? All systems that are functional, whether or not you agree or disagree with their basic philosophy, there is something in them that is useful that you can learn from, that you can adapt, that you can use to make yours better. And often I find that media will portray a certain approach in such a one-dimensional light. That Scandinavia is all good and China is all bad, or, or whatever it is, such that it's difficult to be able to, in a balanced way, say, "Hey, no, let's really look at these systems and learn from them, and bring new ways of thinking into our culture, which is somewhat affected, tinged, and colored with these notions of exceptionalism that come from south of the border that really don't help us in the long run." Yes, and the notion that.、Um... Everything in our system is predicated on the notion of the private individual and private property. While a, a real important part and strength of our system, certainly a big part of the Chinese miracle. I mean, they they didn't succeed economically because of the power of communism. It was when、right. they unleashed parts of the capitalist system that that they started to to build economic might.、Uh, we we could learn a little bit from. From each other, and I, I think, for me,、uh, political acuity is seeing that it's the mixed models that are the ones that take the best of all approaches, and、uh, find the practical way forward. It is not in anyone's interest to have a society on the verge of revolution. It, you know, it, it is not in the elite's interest, and so in 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 our system, when citizens are worried about. Basic things like feeding their kids and paying their bills. It's you know here we we elect a, a Rob Ford, or a Doug Ford, or in the case of the U.S. a Donald Trump. But you know in other parts of the world, Tahrir Square, etc. You know the Arab Spring.、Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean you don't have to go back too far in history to see the French Revolution. I mean some societies at some point we we will find that the the basic premise of who's in charge and how things work. Will be challenged and and why in a widespread way. So, political acuity to me is when governments and business say, "Okay, I think we all gotta kind of think about what we're doing and how we do it." A sense of hope, because without that, then there is fundamental revolution. Clearly, political acuity carries within it an increased capacity for effective communication, both locally and distally. In harkening back to the words of Dr. Trevin Stratton in the first episode of this podcast series. It occurred to me that communication has to continue internationally at a heightened rate since we are all dealing with this pandemic crisis together. However, a globalization in communication does not, in fact, also presuppose a globalization in industry. I asked Peter whether he thought the international response to this pandemic would result in a greater globalization economically, or whether our economies and marketplaces will likely experience a contraction. Reverting back to nationalism or regionalism, I think we're likely to see a kind of bit of both. Where for a while we are going to recoil, 
right. we are going to rethink, we are going to react. But over time, as we have periods of stability, both in an economic sense, but in, in other forms, when we are not faced with a kind of shared global threat, then we may start to see some of those predilections uh, return. I mean, I think still in the West, there will be an inclination towards uh, freer trade and globalization. I think right. there, there are strong reasons for wanting this. Uh, but I don't think our economy will go back to exactly where it was. And so uh, I think we're, we're going to be into trends and patterns. And part of that is we'll notice them because of the nature of how compressed they are. I mean, when in right. 100 years ago, it might take 30 years to see shifts. Well, now uh, people react much quicker. When we looked at, you know, what, what can the wise old men and women tell us about the re recession of 2008, 2009? We looked towards the Great Depression and we realized, yeah, but there is no wise old man or woman here. The, the nature of the compression of time, the speed, the velocity, uh, digital reality of the way money works and markets, it's going to be different. And so I think we're, we're going to see that. Uh, if Israel closes, it makes it a lot easier for others to close. But it yes. took someone to close first. Yes. And so it happens faster is what I'm saying. So we're not talking about evolution anymore where over time industries evolve. We're talking about a much quicker pivot. And the companies that are proactive and strategic are more likely going to be able to say they saw it coming or to benefit from it than those that have their head in the sand. Yeah, and in another conversation before we, we sat down to, to record this podcast, you and I chatted about a conversation you had with a particular person in government where they were predicting a 30% socioeconomic shift in even consumer behavior. That's going to come at us pretty fast and furious. So if that happens also, uh, then we are talking about a wholesale redesign of how we even do business and what we're looking for in workplaces, how we travel, how we, you know, what kind of leisure, uh, everything changes. And that's okay when it happens over time because industries can evolve. They, right. they, they can adjust. It's when it happens overnight then it has devastating impact. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, a simple conversation my wife and I have both had, if I'm going to be teaching and working almost exclusively now from home, do we need two cars? I mean, right. you live in a suburb, um, you always had two cars, and you needed two cars. Do we need two cars? Well, that, that dramatically changes the, the nature of the automotive industry. And what we've been lucky about, one of the benefits of globalization was while we struggled with recession and low interest rates that led to low um, growth in our economy, the only reason the automotive sector survived was because India and China couldn't buy enough of these things. Like we, right. Without right. these global markets, our own market would be in dramatic trouble. So um, this is this, I think, is the problem. So as we're seeing changes start to happen slowly, smart companies will adapt. I'll give you a, another example. One of the demographics that 
um, has been evolving is this sort of the boomers age. One of the things that uh, had a collective impact on, on society is the, the various stages of life that the boomers have gone through. And now that the boomers are sort of in this midlife crisis period, one of the things they're noticing is there's a resurgence of sports cars that are being bought by both men and women who are thinking, you know, like many do, um, I've worked really hard and I've never really treated myself and here I am. Well, there's, there's one company that's been flirting with the idea of, well, why don't, we, why don't we do something different here? Why don't we, instead of leasing you a car, why don't we lease you two cars or three cars? So in the winter, you can have the SUV because you need it in Canadian right. winters. And, and in the summer, you can have the sports car. And, and, and you know, on occasion when you need something uh, different, you know, it, it's available. Now, I don't know what, how that works, but it's a new kind of way of thinking about meeting consumer need. And so as we're more, more of us are working from home, um, we're going to see services and products that replace the other things, but they have to happen slowly or else there's great disruption. And um, yeah. our and capacity you know, to handle disruption is going to be uh, challenged by the kind of spending we've seen now in the pandemic. Like we're just not going to have a lot of money to spend on uh, supporting people who are out of work if this thing continues too much longer. Exactly. And in terms of innovation, one of my other guests is David Patterson, who is responsible for strategic partnerships and innovations at GM Canada. And he talks a lot about GM's priority push for electric cars on the one hand, and then self-driving cars on the other. And to your point that this is a different way of thinking, a world of self-driving cars might mean that you need no car because cars just sort of move around almost like your own personal public transit and you pay for this service. So some companies like GM are really forward thinking. I was also impressed with them just as an aside because after they had that crisis with their Oshawa plant, they reopened it and are now making PPE for um, the Canadian market. So that's something they're very proud of. But those kinds of wholesale shifts look like they are being accelerated because we are in a time where we have pause and we can decide which way we want to go. And I think, to your point, political acuity within organizations is one thing, but the political acuity of an organization to what's happening in community, I think there's going to be a very big difference between those who are thinking ahead, like David Patterson and GM, and others who still are holding on to this belief that the world's going to go back to what it was, air quotes, normal, which I don't really think exists any longer. Think about the, some of the more innovative jurisdictions. And I'm thinking of the CAO of the town of Innisfil. Yeah. Instead of having to pay for a public transit system, they're providing every citizen, I can't recall if it's 5 or $7, towards the cost of their Uber transit. So mm -hmm. they don't need buses to run up and down the street and hire people. And, and you go where you actually want to go and we'll think about it differently. And so uh, recently I've heard people say, you know, one of the things about COVID that's, you know, that's been on the positive side is cause us to rethink how we live. And one person recently said to me, I, I like the simplicity. And another said, wow, I realized I don't have to spend all kinds of money on all these things I used to do and I can get, a, I can get along on a lot less. And so for many of us, I'm sure there's some level of uh, reflection on our lives 
the choices we've made, the way we go about our business. And now some of that's being forced by the realities of, uh, of restrictions and other things. And others may well, as, as we discussed, uh, may be a permanent positive choice that we make. Right. Frankly, to be you know, very personal, um, I hated the idea of teaching online because yeah. I thought uh, what happened in a classroom couldn't be replicated. Now, if we're being honest, I think a big part of it was I didn't really understand the technology. And because I was afraid of it, I didn't think I would do it very well. So I, I diminished the notion. But now having been forced to do it, I've discovered its great potential. And I would like to continue, and maybe it's 30% of what I do, doing it online because I see some of the benefits. I have eight hours a week that I'm not commuting. That's been a time where I found the time to spend with my family. My wife and I walk in the morning and in the evening. There's now time for exercise. It never seemed to occur prior. Right. And the wear and tear of sort of, you know, how you felt and the body and the traffic and all of that and the costs associated with that, um, all of a sudden are just not there. And so for some of us, we, we may not want to return to that old way of doing things. As we move towards the end of our time together, I asked Peter what his opinion was on the role of government in a future post-pandemic world. Would the role of government be increased in our lives, or would it in fact be reduced? I'm an eternal optimist. I've always believed that government uh, can and must be a uh, force for good, and that uh, right. we can have good government, and that when citizens and corporations and organizations and other interests come together, we have the best of, of the potential models for success. So I think we, we now know that government is at the, the center of everything. Yes. Much, much, you know, I mean, I've been saying this to my students, especially in business schools, and most of them sort of roll their eyes like, yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's all about business except when it's not. And what right. we've learned is there are a lot of rules and regulations and it's changing and, you know, you just, you can't do this with, without the other. And so I think we are indeed going to see a golden age of government that thinks differently, but that it is more the facilitator that brings interest together in a notion of common good than it is the all-knowing or simply the referee between private interest. And so I think we're, we're in for a period where if, if governments can manage phase two and the movement towards vaccine well, they'll have the credibility to go that next step, which would be to bring those interests together, to think on a national and provincial level about what's good for us and how we can still engage in a global community so that we're not uh, shut off from the rest of the world. Risking asking you a difficult and perhaps unfair question. I love that assessment and I share your vision. How do we relate that, however, to decades of management that we just talked about at the beginning of our time together that maybe was not on point or the healthiest way that has created a class difference and a fragmentation and polarization in, the, in society and the rise of populist movements around the world, how do those now relate? Because I'm not seeing uh, COVID necessarily putting a cap on that. No, in fact, it, it, you know, it has exacerbated the whole yes. issue. And so I think that politicians 
care when public will changes. Right. So I believe there's been a shift in our thinking. I think that even those who might not be a part of the groups that feel disengaged realize that there is a cost of that disengagement and that it ought to be improved. Now, will everyone share a goal of the perfect reality? Probably not. But I think there will be great political will for uh, parties and individuals who propose a better reality. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of what Obama sold was hope. And I think that um, in politics, when we, we don't seem to take the time to actually talk about public policy, the idea of hope is a pretty good commodity to, to get people to rally around. And so if we can demonstrate that we are going to make progress on these issues, then there will be widespread political support for those parties or individuals who do so. And it's my hope that we do it out of pure practicality, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because when everyone does well, as I suggested earlier, economies grow, societies right. flourish, the arts and, and all aspects of our society is more stable and um, makes for a better place to live. I mean, I've done training and teaching in countries where there are only the very rich and the very poor and there are tall fences with with barbed wire and and that is not the kind of place that you want to live and i think canadians have a different idea and perhaps we just lost track of it all we thought everything was good the prevailing ideologies of uh, the canadian dream and uh, all of those things were that uh, everybody's doing all right aren't they and now we know that either because of COVID or just simply because uh, not everyone's doing so well. And it's time to actually address these things. When we see the intergenerational change, so as the, the boomers start to drift away, we'll see that uh, there's new thinking. And hopefully we look at firms and organizations like uh, various police forces, et cetera, that have just fallen into bad cultures, bad behaviors, and bad training and, right. and approaches. And, and we go deeper towards, you know, those, those ideas. I, 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 for example, I used to teach public administration to the police foundations program at a college. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, why are we, we attracting or letting in people who are just big muscle heads I want people who can think. I mean, policing is more public administration than it is beating up people, or it right. should be. And more and more, it's de-escalation, not sort of uh, roughing someone or manhandling them. So we have to do better there. And I, 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 I know it's not fast enough. And so we've got to make choices about these things. And I think that there is enough will now. And where there is political will, votes follow, governments budget dollars follow, and, and we will see changes, positive changes. So risking asking you another unfair question, and as we come to the end of our time, do you think that there is something that is particularly Canadian that we have done pretty well over the course of this crisis that we could potentially offer up to the rest of the world as a gift? or this is what we have to offer, or this is what we've learned, or the world needs a little more Canada in this way. I'd like to think that that is true. And I'd like to think that it is that we were kinder to one another. I'd like to think that it is also that we have always been America light, 
yes. or your uplight, where we have been a little bit of both. We've taken the, the best of our European heritage, or English heritage. We've taken the best of sort of North American spirit and culture, and somehow we found a way to make it work uniquely in a Canadian way here. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that that's true, that there is also an ethos that permeates that bigger than hockey or Tim Hortons that, <laughs> that just demonstrates that we are a little bit different and that we're going to figure that out so that when we move forward, we, we're stronger. I'd like to think that's true. I'm kind of with you. Going back to the social cohesion piece, I like to think that we value social cohesion. <clears throat> and I like to think that our diversity not just in terms of the people one-on-one -on -one that we're looking at, but also the different cultural inputs that we have that very often people lament because they say, well, you know, we don't have a strong national identity, do we? We're just a collection of all these people. And yet I find that because we are a collection of all these people, we have a very strong national identity that allows for a degree of flexibility and malleability and openness that a lot of other cultures actually don't necessarily have to the same degree. And that has helped us weather this particular moment where we have to pull together much better. And if it's even for the a wrong reason, I mean, oftentimes when, when, when Canadians are asked, a lot of the research shows that one of the ways we define ourselves is by saying that we're not American. Right. So even if we're only motivated to demonstrate to the world that we're better than them right. on this, then that's good enough for me. But I think there is more to it, that we do have a different sentiment and that we see in the extreme what's happening there at times in various aspects of the, the, the underbelly of, of the worst of human behavior and that we want to rise to something better. And I, I think that our institutions are strong. There still is great credibility in them and that we have a sense of something greater and that that will, that will carry us. But this is one of those things where if we don't fight for it every single day, we lose our place. And so it's my hope that we don't rest on those laurels, that we don't think that somehow this is a, a permanent reality. We've got to fight to make it better or it will get worse. Peter, thank you so much for your time. True to form, every time we talk, I learn so much and I enjoy your company. How about we do this again in like six months and see where the world has gone? I would love that, and thank you for including me in this. That was the eloquent and always brilliant Dr. Peter Constantino. Join me next time when my guest will be Leanne McAleer, an internationally renowned corporate innovation expert. Leanne's going to talk to us about what she has learned through this crisis about corporate creativity and innovation and how we can best position ourselves to meet the challenges ahead. Again, if you'd like to get a hold of me, I would be very happy to engage in conversation with you. Please get a hold of me by dropping me a message on my website, drjpgideon.com. That's D-R-J-P-G-E-D-E-O-N.com. I look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, be well. This has been Corporate Wayfinding. Conversations in Transformation with Dr. J.P. Gettian.